Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. I have to say, I have been looking forward to this show since we booked it a couple of weeks ago. Our special guest, Cynthia Tucker, who uh, many of you remember was for years here a, a columnist, editorial page editor, and ultimately Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Over her years, Cynthia Tucker, she, she was truly, no exaggeration, my journalistic hero. Uh, because she enraged as many people as she delighted with her columns. She was one of the boldest voices, editorial voices, that I have ever known. Um, And we're going to talk to her in just a minute and talk more about why she's on the show today. But before we get to that, let me introduce my Tuesday partner on the uh, show, uh, the AJC senior reporter, Tamar Hallerman, who, of course, Tamar, you were in Washington uh, for a long time before you relocated here, and you almost overlapped with Cynthia, although you came a couple years after she had moved on, right? And I was just saying before the show, when I started at the AJ, as the AJC's Washington correspondent in 2016, there were still congressmen smarting over her columns, which is to show what a legend <laughs> Cynthia Tucker is. <laughs> I think legend is absolutely appropriate, Cynthia, and I hope you don't mind it. That is not hyperbole. We're thrilled that you're here. You won a Pulitzer Prize for your column writing in 2006, and now you've uh, co-authored a book called The Southernization of America, A Story of Democracy in the Balance, which we're going to spend time talking about today today. Uh, But in the meantime, thank you so much for being with us. Now you're down in Mobile, Alabama. Yes, I am. And uh, Bill, I'm absolutely delighted to be with you this morning. And thank you for that very kind and generous introduction. I am back in L.A., as I call it. I grew up not in Mobile, but in this part of the world, um, which is even more southern than Atlanta. Yeah, well, you know, we should remind, we should tell people you actually you come from a city with a great heritage of writers. You grew up in Monroeville, the home of Harper Lee, and also also where Truman Capote spent a great deal of time with uh, his family, where where Truman Capote and Harper Lee became wonderful friends. But that's your heritage. That that is my hometown, not a city, really, um, a small town, small town Alabama. Um, and it has it has changed in some ways politically. Um, a couple of years ago, Monroeville elected its first black mayor, a guy I actually went to school with. Uh, but in some ways, it hasn't changed at all. It remains very much the small town south. Um, before we get into the book, and if you don't mind, one more note about your personal uh, life. Um, There are a lot of people like me who really were sorry when you left the AJC, who loved reading you day after day, and who wonder, it's been quite a while. I can't remember, you left in about 2012, the Washington Beat. I did. But why did you give up newspapering, Cynthia? And what have Uh, you been doing since? (laughs) 
Bill, as you know as well as I do, the news industry um, changed tremendously. Um, over the last couple of decades, newspapers started to downsize. Um, I could see the handwriting on the wall, and I left Washington. I wanted to return to Atlanta, um, and the University of Georgia offered me a teaching position. I started teaching at the Grady School of Communication. Uh, mm-hmm. That was great. And then I uh, wanted to be closer to my mother, who is now 95 years old, Mm. in reasonably good health, but I wanted to be closer. So I came back. I didn't want to live in Monroeville, though. Uh, So I came to (laughs) Mobile, and I am teaching at the University of South Alabama. Mm-hmm. Still writing a weekly newspaper column for those few newspapers that uh, still buy my column, maybe about 40 papers spread across the country, um, and writing and teaching and enjoying it. And, by the way, uh, when my friends were sending their children off to college, I got the bright idea to adopt a newborn, so I'm the very old mommy of a 13-year-old daughter. <laughs> I think that's such a wonderful part of your story. And I'm I glad got to you tell you that it. that is my full-time job. <laughs> What's her name? Carly. Carly. Um, all right, let's talk. Uh, tomorrow, I want you to be able to jump in right away as well. Um, tomorrow, we know in, in uh, having gotten a chance to read Cynthia's book that um, it's, it's essentially a story. It... The book is comes from uh, an earlier book in 1974, an Atlanta journalist named John Edgerton, who was also extraordinarily well-known here, wrote The Americanization of Dixie, The Southernization of America. Uh, and this is sort of a continuation of that book. Tamar, let me start by giving you a chance to just get involved, and we'll have Cynthia join us. Um, tell me about, as you approach this book, how you felt when you read... The, the ways in which Cynthia and um, uh, uh, Fry Gilliard, her writing partner on this, uh, talked about kind of the way the good and the bad of the South has been exported to the rest of the country. <laughs> what struck me, you know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about politics today, and I, I just keep thinking it's so polarized. This is such an extraordinary moment. One of the hallmarks to me feels like you turn on the TV and it's like we're in this era of split screen, split screen politics. You know, depending on which channel you tune into, it's entirely different political realities that you're kind of watching before your eyes. What was so striking to me was how, you know, Cynthia and your your co-author, you mentioned how there were also moments even in the late 60s, early 70s, where there still was that split screen moment when you had Jimmy Carter elected as governor with this pledge of racial unity, standing with Daddy King. But then you also had Richard Nixon in the White House, who had been influenced so much by George Wallace. Um, And I'd love to kind of start there, Cynthia. And I'm curious if you think it's worse now, and are you concerned kind of about our trajectory moving forward, or or do we maybe have lessons in the past about how this might be able to get a little better? Both are true, um, I think. Um, if you think about 
the way the South has been traditionally, Bill mentioned this, that when John Edgerton wrote his book, the South was just edging out of its isolation. Uh, but if you had known the South um, back in the 50s and 60s, you would have known a region whose politics were pretty much showing that split screen. You know, the nation going in one direction and the South over here isolated with its Jim Crow politics, segregated schools, segregated public facilities, uh, black folks unable to go into a restaurant or rent a hotel. And it, the difference is that it wasn't that well publicized. The South was so isolated that most of the nation didn't even know that or see that until Martin Luther King Jr. started leading protests during the civil rights movement. That's when that South uh, became known to much of the nation. Uh, when Northern newscasters and newspaper reporters started to publicize that South to the rest of the nation. And the civil rights movement helped to change the South tremendously and help the South to become integrated. And I, I mean that word in both, in, in many of its uses, integrated with the rest of the nation. You ask me if things are worse now. I think things are worse now only in this sense. You know, we have had, the nation has had periods of extreme divisiveness, the Civil War being the worst example of that. And uh, tomorrow, I'm sure you know this history, the 1960s, which Bill and I both remember, were extraordinarily divisive and violent. I think the difference is that one of our major parties, the Republican Party, seems to have given up on democracy. I don't know that uh, since, since the Civil War, when the South gave up on democracy, basically, uh, we have not had a time before when one party decided uh, we don't like this idea of free and fair elections. And, and that is extraordinarily dangerous, I think, and that is what worries me most. Um, Cynthia, I, I want to make sure, I, I want to ask you, in, in the very start, at the very start of the show today, in the headlines, I laid out a premise that I think describes your book, and I want to ask you if you think it was correct. I, I said that for many years the politics of the South set the region apart uh, I mean, slavery, obviously, the starting point of all of mm -hmm. that. Jim Crow laws, uh, Southern senators like a Richard B. Russell, who tried to stop civil rights legislation, and the like. We, we were a, a region here of reactionary politics. But I think what you and, and your, and, and your co-author do with this book is point out how, in how many ways the rest of the country has embraced much of the things we think about when we think about the bad old days of the South. Have I got that right? Absolutely, yes. Uh, when Edgerton wrote his book, when John Edgerton wrote in the 1970s, 
he was already seeing the ways in which the cell uh, was leaving its isolation uh, with the building of interstate highways, uh, with television, and today uh, with the Internet, the South is much more a part of the rest of the country. But even Edgerton wrote that he thought the South and the rest of the nation were not so much exchanging strengths as exchanging sins. Mm. I think that that is even more true today, as so much of the nation has embraced these reactionary politics that the South was known for. Now, uh, James Baldwin and other intellectuals of his time would have made very clear that the North and the Midwest have always had racism, too. That's absolutely true. You know, racism has been in the DNA of the nation from the start. But it was the South that was the centerpiece of that racism because of the institution of slavery. But I had long believed that the civil rights movement was teaching the rest of the nation what was so wrong with that. Um, when we saw the South finally abandon Jim Crow uh, with the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s, when we saw governors like Jimmy Carter elected people who said that the South uh, has learned its lesson, that we need to move away from the politics of racism, I had believed that the nation learned those lessons. But uh, Tamar mentioned Richard Nixon earlier. I think Richard Nixon learned from George Wallace. George Wallace ran for president in 1968, and he won a few Democratic primaries, and he won in some places in the Midwest mm -hmm. where he was embraced by working class whites. And I think what Richard Nixon learned from that is that there, are, there were many whites and still are all over the country who are resentful of the changes that were wrought by the civil rights movement, who are ready to um, embrace fear and resentment and white grievance. And unfortunately, we see that today, that so many politicians have embraced that. And, and I also want to point out that a lot of that is led by Southerners. Mitch McConnell from the Upper South, Kentucky, Ted Cruz from Texas, um, who have become very prominent uh, politicians on the national stage and have brought that politics of fear and resentment to the national stage. Tamara, jump in. 
Yeah, I mean, on that note, Cynthia, in your book, you talk about kind of this inflection point that happened in 2008, when so many Americans maybe thought with the election of Barack Obama that we were kind of moving past a lot of the country's more, you know, the most awful moments, you know, racist moments from our country's past. But you say kind of two things happened in 2008. First of all, a black man was elected president. But also, you know, the Census Bureau began to predict that in the near future, white people would no longer be the majority uh, in America. And this kind of, you know, as a jumping off point to start talking about the Tea Party, the birther movement, this idea of taking our, our country back. Can you talk about what we've seen since 2008 and how um, and, and kind of what you think the, the road ahead is? Well, tomorrow, like so many Americans, I was thrilled uh, when Barack Obama was elected president because I thought it really did mark a moment uh, when the nation was on a path to that more perfect union. Uh, the late, great Martin Luther King popular popularized this phrase that the moral arc of the universe bends long, but it bends toward justice. And I really did think that Barack Obama's election showed that the nation would keep making this slow, uh, plodding progress toward a place where uh, we would all be equal under the law, every person uh, regardless of race or national origin, would be uh, have equal opportunity. But even during Obama's first term, I was in Washington um, as a columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I began to see something very different. The rise of the Tea Party People who claimed that their concerns were about taxes and government spending. But I went to cover a lot of their rallies, and what I saw was something very different. I saw this ver these very ugly racist signs with uh, Barack Obama's face um, imposed on a picture of a gorilla or his face imposed on a picture of a witch doctor. When the Affordable Care Act was passed, uh, John Lewis told me he walked down the steps of the Capitol uh, with another black member of Congress, and they were called the N-word. Uh, it was during the early 2000s that Pat Buchanan, published a book called Suicide of a Superpower. And it was all about the nation's changing demographics, all about a time when um, the uh, demographers predict around maybe 2040, whites will no longer represent a simple majority. Uh, they will be a plurality. They will, know, they will still be the largest ethnic group in the country, but they will no longer be 50% plus. And Pat Buchanan wrote about this as the death of the nation, that mm -hmm. if whites are no longer a majority, uh, that the nation would be destroyed. 
And I saw a politics of fear and resentment on the part of many whites that suggested they were terrified by this idea. And what Obama's election represented to them was the idea that people of color were becoming such a strong, such a large demographic group that they could elect a president. And they were terrified by that. And what I believe that we saw in Trump's election was a backlash to that, or as some more clever person than I has called it, a white lash. You you know, what's interesting about all of that, there's so much to unpack already in what you just said, Cynthia. Number one, uh, we remember, you, you and I go back far enough to remember, in 1992, when Pat Buchanan gave a speech at the Republican National Convention in Houston that was a, what that appealed to the far right. It was nativist. It was angry. It was exactly the things you're talking about. And at the time, it was an embarrassment to the George H.W. Bush uh, campaign team. They were horrified uh, that that was, image was going to come out of the convention. Well, of course, today, that's where the Republican Party lives, which is a fascinating thing uh, to think about in and of itself. You talk about Donald Trump. You, you say in the book, you describe uh, uh, Donald Trump as Newt Gingrich with a higher IQ, <laughs> which is a fascinating description. I want to tell you a quick story uh, that I think speaks to uh, the, the way in which the country is more alike than different in terms of the South being a separate region. I moved to Atlanta. I've said this on the air before. I moved to Atlanta in 1983. The last big story I covered before I came here was the campaign of Harold Washington, who became the first mm. black mayor of Chicago. We would go out on the campaign trail with Harold, and people were throwing things in white uh, working-class neighborhoods at us. They were furious that a black man was running for mayor. It was a dangerous assignment. After he was elected, I announced I was coming to Atlanta to work at WSB-TV. Friends came to me and said, you're going to go to Georgia? How can you move down to the racist South? That's outrageous. And my reaction was, have we all just lived through the same mayor's campaign or not? <laughs> so, Cynthia, my point being, uh, you know, <laughs> you talk about the southernization of America. There's an example of, of just that. Absolutely. You know, again, um, black intellectuals from the, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s would have pointed out of the racism that was Im imbued, embedded in, in the Northeast and Midwest. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. went to Chicago to try to change the segregated housing situation and could not make any get there. By contrast, when you came to Atlanta, Bill, you found uh, black mayors in office, and whites began, uh, while whites had fled the city of Atlanta in the 70s after Maynard Jackson uh, was elected, they began moving back into the city. In the 1990s, they were comfortable with uh, black mayors being elected. And so I had hope that that was the lesson that the South would teach the rest of the nation. Look around, the South was changing 
led by states like Georgia and North Carolina um, that were showing us a more progressive politics. You know, the South was much better off economically after the civil rights movement. many black Americans began to see the changes in the South and they were moving back. There was a reverse migration. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping that that was the lesson that the rest of the South could learn, that this is a pluralistic nation um, and we can all live together and prosper together. But apparently that is not the lesson that many of us have taken away. Uh, Let's do this. I've got to get to a break, uh, and we've got a lot more to talk about. Tomorrow when we come back, I want to make sure you get plenty of opportunities to talk with Cynthia about her book because I know you have a lot to say. So um, when we come back, I'm going to step back a little bit, and tomorrow let you uh, uh, have some time to talk to Cynthia. We'll be back with Political Rewind in just a minute. We're back on Political Rewind. Our guest today, uh, Cynthia Tucker, her new book, The Southernization of America. She co-authored it with Fry Gilliard. And uh, those of you who have been around a while remember Cynthia Tucker as uh, one of the most popular and controversial columnists that the AJC has ever had. Tamar Hellerman, of course, joins me on Tuesdays. Tamar, please lead us through uh, some, some of the things that you'd like to talk about at this point. Thank you. Well, Cynthia, I'd love for you to weigh in on a more recent trend that we've seen in Republican politics over the last six months, um, led by my home state of Virginia, where late last year we saw Republican Glenn Youngkin win an upset victory there, uh, flipping many Joe Biden voters by talking about parental involvement in children's education. Um, Fast forward to this session of the Georgia legislature, and the Republicans there passed a raft of bills kind of capitalizing off these education issues, using it as kind of a wedge to talk about a lot of things like transgender kids or transgender girls in sports, critical race theory. They passed a parental bill of rights. I'd love for you to weigh in, especially as I looked at some of your columns from 2006, the year you won the Pulitzer, you were talking a ton about the way that race was discussed in politics. Um, What do you think about how education is being used as this prism to address a lot of these culture war issues in the South? Well, the first thing I'd like to say about the Republican Party is that it's all culture war. Uh, They offer very few traditional political programs. Um, They don't have, for example, an answer for inflation. Uh, They'd rather fight their political battles completely on the culture war front. And they have chosen the classroom as one of the places to wage that war. And I think that is exceedingly dangerous. But it also um, has its echoes in the Old South. When I was growing up, Tamar, and uh, I'm not going to say how old I am, but uh, Bill and I um, are (laughs) contemporaries. 
when I was growing up in segregated schools, uh, I was given textbooks. And my fourth grade textbook was called No Alabama. It was co-authored by a man who said things such as um, slaves were happy. And the war, the Civil War, was all about northern aggression and um, states' rights. I also, uh, during that period, uh, Confederate monuments were all over the South, uh, and still are, by the way, at southern courthouses where uh, Confederate generals were hailed as heroes. And so this so-called CRT battle has echoes in that time. All that Confederate sympathizers were trying to do was rewrite history. Politicians today who talk about critical race theory, first of all, many of them have no idea what it is. Actual critical race theory is usually taught only at a college level in graduate schools. Um, what they mean when they talk about critical race theory today is they don't want actual history taught as it really was. They don't want to talk about um, the racism that has marked this country's history. But what I find when I gave a talk about my childhood um, at my daughter's school very recently, I talked to middle schoolers and high schoolers about Jim Crow. They were fascinated, um, and they were not at all interested. Uh, they didn't feel the white kids in the room certainly didn't feel responsible for any of that. It didn't make them feel guilty, but I think they were most interested in knowing how not to repeat any of that. If we don't teach students actual history, how will they know what happened that was wrong? How will they know how to, re how to lead the nation forward? Um, and that is what this whole CR, that's what's dangerous about this whole so-called CRT battle that students won't know how not to avoid the things that the nation's leaders did wrong. Tamar? Um, you know, you talk a lot about Stacey Abrams uh, in the book and the election of uh, Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff. It seems like a moment, you know, kind of you can draw maybe a parallel to the 60s when all of a sudden you saw a lot of northern journalists and publications starting to come down and pay attention to what the South is doing. I think there are many parallels to what we saw in, in 2018 and again in 2020, where people suddenly realized things are changing rapidly in Georgia and we need to be paying attention. Um, obviously, this is going to be another hugely you know, massive political year in Georgia. And talk to me a little bit about what you're expecting and given kind of this current climate that we're in, um, how you think it might play out? Uh, well, let me start by saying that um, in uh, Southernization of America, um, my co-author and I, Fry Gilliard and I, talk about a lot of the things that have gone wrong. 
there is a lot of pessimism in the book uh, because we talk about, for example, um, Republicans waging this battle against uh, teaching actual history. We also talk about the clampdown on voting rights. But there are also glimmers of optimism, and Georgia is one of those. The elections of Raphael Warnock, the first black U.S. senator from Georgia, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, John Ossoff is the own, the first uh, Jewish American U.S. Senator from the state of Georgia. And as you two know, uh, this new climate has been uh, energized by voting rights activists like Stacey Abrams, and uh, she's not the only one. Uh, the woman who co-founded uh, Black Voters Matter, whose name I can't recall at the moment, but she's also been active in helping pave the way for this. Unfortunately, what did Republicans take away from this? They didn't take away, oh my goodness, this means we have to work harder to have programs and policies that appeal to uh, white progressive voters and voters of color. That's not their takeaway. Their takeaway was, oh my goodness, all these voters of color are voting. We have to make it harder for them to vote. Uh, what their takeaway was, uh, democracy isn't such a great thing after all. If you give people the vote, if we make it easy for them to vote, they might vote in a way we don't like. And not only did they do that, you know, there were things that Republicans passed in Georgia that got a lot of publicity, such as this business of criminalizing giving water and food to people who stand in long lines. Uh, that got a lot of attention. What didn't get as much attention is the way that they were changing. Um, they were limiting the power of the Secretary of State. Uh, they were changing the rules for county elections officials so that it would make it easier for a Republican legislature to overturn a legitimate free and fair election, not just in Georgia, but a lot of Republican legislators, um, a lot of Republican legislatures did this throughout the country. That's extraordinarily dangerous and anti-democratic. And I'm really concerned about that, Tamar. So uh, both Tamara and I went back and read columns that were submitted uh, the year that you won your Pulitzer in 2006. <clears throat> and I want to read a couple of things from those columns, one of which relates exactly to what you just talked about and Tamara asked you about. On October 15, 2006, you published one of any number of columns on your belief that Republicans were trying to deny minorities the vote. And just 
for just a couple sentences, Republican leaders, this is 2006, have strained mightily to convince the courts they are protecting the franchise from voter fraud. That might as well have been written in today's <laughs> Atlanta Journal-Constitution, obviously. But then I want to turn to something completely different, if you don't mind. On, on, uh, in July of 2006, you wrote a column with this lead. In a few free precincts of American politics, voters still applaud the utterly futile gesture of defiance, the confrontational rhetoric that pleases only true believers, the fist shaken in the face of an opponent who neither notices nor cares. Apparently such empty gestures, signs of impotence really, have come to be seen as speaking truth to power. And that was 2006. Uh, well over a decade before Marjorie <laughs> Sandler Green came on the scene, you were writing about the equally contentious and controversial member of Congress from Georgia, Cynthia McKinney. But the parallels yes. are astounding, Cynthia. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. You know, um, I am, I have to say, um, that I have been um, unpleasantly surprised. Uh, I have really been taken aback by the extent to which the the really um, ugly, dumb uh, fabrications that Marjorie Taylor Greene spews are taken as gospel by so many of her followers across the country, by the way. She raises a lot of money with these confrontational gestures which appeal uh, to her reactionary base. Let me say, though, while um, that has flooded Republican precincts, there's also some of that on the Democratic side. There are a lot of Democrats who wish Joe Biden would do the same thing. Well, the fact of the matter is one of the reasons Joe Biden got elected was because he doesn't do that. Uh, Bill, I still believe there is a majority of, of Americans out there who are sick of all that, who don't want all that who want our politicians to get back to the business of governing, of compromise, uh, but, but we're not the loudest. We're the people who are loudest, who get the most attention, are the people who love the Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, and that isn't good for democracy either. Um. Let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. We still have time to talk more with Cynthia Tucker about her new book, The Southernization of America, A Story of Democracy in the Ballot. Tomorrow and I will be back with Cynthia in just a moment.
We're back uh, for the final segment of Political Rewind. Very quickly, what I want to say, Cynthia, to our, our listeners who weren't around for your work in, in, in Atlanta, is we just talked about uh, a couple of pieces that you wrote really uh, uh, being hard on Cynthia McKinney, an African-American member of Congress from the 4th District here in Georgia. One of the things that made you so controversial, but I always thought so brave, was that there were people who felt that coming that an African-American woman writing a commentary in Atlanta should not be willing to criticize, as you did when you felt it was necessary, people like the King family. You were called out from, on that on many occasions. Um, it, it, there was a feeling, how could you possibly do that? And I always thought it was one of the bravest things about you. It also caused you more grief than a lot of other things <laughs> you wrote, I suspect. <laughs> Well, thank you for saying that, Bill. I always thought it was incumbent on me um, as the black editorial page editor. You know, it's easy to point out racism in whites, uh, but it was incumbent on me to point out the flaws, the failures of black leaders, too. Um, and I believe that to be true today. Unfortunately, I think we're overwhelmed by racism, uh, so that is at the moment, uh, or at least by politicians who pander to racists. I'm not so sure that all of them are that racist, uh, but they pander to racists. Um, and so lately I have spent more of my time talking about that. But I believe that the failures and flaws of black leaders uh, are something I should continue to point out. It was a very courageous thing that you did in a town like Atlanta, and I just think it's worth pointing that out today. Tomorrow. Thank you. I want to look ahead a little bit. You know, Cynthia, you wrote a chapter in your book about Joe Biden and how black voters in South Carolina uh, very much held him up and, and kind of are responsible mm -hmm. for um, kind of creating that momentum for him that was able to ultimately get him the Democratic nomination and eventually for him to win the White House. Um, now, Joe Biden's approval rating is underwater, but he's lost less support from black voters than others. Um, I'm curious, you know, as you look ahead to 2024, how you think black voters will respond to Joe Biden? You know, he elevated Kamala Harris to become uh, the first female VP, the first black woman to become um, VP. And I'm curious how you think Joe Biden is doing with that demographic and, and what you think needs to be done, especially since he hasn't been able to get a Voting Rights Act extension through Congress. You know, his big social spending package has been stalled and there's no real end in sight. So um, let's talk about the midterms first, um, because I really think that uh, voters who supported Joe Biden in 2020 need to be energized for the midterms. Sometimes people forget that it's hard for a president to get anything done with a hostile Congress. Um, so I think Biden needs to be out there a lot more. Um, fighting for the things he believes in. Having said that, let me say, Tamar, I think that black voters are just a, a bit more pragmatic. Um, we have had to make tough choices uh, for decades, not about um, the perfect candidate for us, 
but which one would do us less harm? And so you have seen black voters over decades now supporting the candidate who is less racist. Uh, right here in Alabama, we know that a Republican will be elected governor. So my mom is all about supporting the incumbent, Kay Ivey, who has moved pretty far to the right. But Kay, uh, the people who are running against Kay Ivey in the primaries are even further to the right. Um, that is not to say that Joe Biden is on the right, but it is just to point out that black voters have a long history of being pragmatic. And so that I think that black voters will, especially middle-aged black voters, will rally to him in 2024, assuming he's the nominee. The question becomes, uh, voters closer to your age, uh, black, white, green, and, vote, and purple, can they be motivated? Will they understand the stakes enough? Um, to come to the polls in 2024. Uh, that is the demographic I am more concerned about. And so I will be relying on voting rights activists such as Stacey Abrams um, to rally that group, to help them understand uh, that just throwing up their hands and saying, well, nothing has changed for me isn't good enough. Um, and rallying them around uh, issues such as abortion rights might help with younger voters. You end your book, Cynthia, on a pretty pessimistic note. You, you quote the <laughs> civil rights historian Taylor Branch, um, who asked, you know, if, if people were given the choice between democracy and whiteness, how many would choose whiteness? And you say you aren't so sure. <laughs> Um, talk about that and kind of what might be ahead for our country. Well, um, Tamara, as you point out, um, there's a lot of pessimism in the book, but I want to end on a more optimistic note. Um, I want to quote um, a man who's a hero for many of us, a native Alabamian, but Georgia was his adopted home state the late, great John Lewis, um, we end the book by saying we don't know which way this is going to go, that uh, there are so many anti-democratic moves out there. Uh, Republican legislatures have made voting much harder. But the late, great John Lewis always talked about getting in good trouble. He said that the vote is the greatest weapon in a democracy. So if those of us who care about democracy will understand that democracy is in fact in the balance, we have to vote. Uh, people who are not activists need to volunteer to take older voters to the polls particularly in rural areas, younger people, 18 to 25, need to go register to vote and, again, drive people to the polls. It's going to be harder 
this time around. So we need to see more activism. So if people tomorrow will get in good trouble, I think we can propel this country forward uh, toward that more perfect union uh, that our founders talked about. So as we get set to wrap up here, um, I, I, one of the things that I think about um, when I and thought about when I read your book, Cynthia, is it, the good and the bad of the Americanization of the South. So, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the negatives, um, uh, but, but the positives are things like Jimmy Carter in 1970 giving his inaugural speech and stunning Georgians and the country when he said the end, it's time to end uh, segregation, racial discrimination. Mm-hmm has got to end, which was a magnificent moment. Um, Another thing that's interesting in which I think the South has become more part of the the rest of the country, you talked about Stacey Abrams. So Stacey Abrams set out in 2018 and before to say, we have got to break the old notions of how you win, how Democrats win elections. Mm -hmm. It has got to be about the voices of minorities energizing people to come to the polls, and that means a more progressive approach to our politics. And, of course, she lost by a very small margin but paved the way for a Raphael Warnock and a John Ossoff. So uh, there's a lot of negatives in the book, but there are ways in which I think you believe that Georgia— in some ways, is a stronger state at the same time. We just have an interesting back-and-forth dynamic here. Fair enough? I think Georgia is a much stronger state. I also think it is an example for the nation. What Georgia accomplished shows um, the best of the South, and it is an example for the nation. Cynthia Tucker, what a pleasure to uh, have you on Political Rewind. Again, your book is The Southernization of America, a story of democracy in the making. Uh, You co-authored it with uh, Fry Gilliard. Um, And um, I really encourage people to uh, go out and and buy a copy book. And when you do, go to an independent bookstore to do that. People tell me all the time, (laughs) stop promoting buying online. (laughs) Cynthia, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. I really enjoyed it. And thank you, Tamar. Tamar Hellerman, love having you on Tuesdays, uh, part of the show. Thank you for being here as well. We're about out of time for today. Um, Just a reminder, tomorrow's Political Rewind newsletter day. Uh, We're going to be working on the newsletter as soon as the show is over. If you want to subscribe, all you have to do is go to gpb.org slash newsletters, and you'll find our newsletter uh, there. So that's it for us today. My thanks to Sam Burmis Dawes, Natalie Mendenhall, and Jesse Neiswanger for their work behind the scenes on Political Rewind. Till tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy. Bye bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>